singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast of Singularity Weblog, and if you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by either liking this video on YouTube, uh, writing a brief review on iTunes, or by simply making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today my guest with the answers will be Professor Danko Nikolic. Danko Nikolic is a brain and mind scientist running an electrophysiology lab at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research, and is also the creator of the concepts of ideasthesia and practopoiesis. Thanks for taking time to be with us, Danko. I'm very happy to have you on my show. I'm also very happy to be here. Danko, let us begin our conversation today by asking you uh, to please introduce yourself uh, and what you do for those of our viewers and listeners who may not be familiar with your work. So I'm initially by training a psychologist. I studied psychology in Zagreb, Croatia. Then I moved to the United States where I got a PhD in psychology. And after having studied psychology for so many years, I realized that the time was to begin studying the brain, the physiology. And that's why I moved to Frankfurt in a neurophysiological laboratory. And over the years, I've been studying both sides, psychology and the brain side, which allowed me to understand both sides and to develop theories of both sides and also theories how the two are related. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. So let me ask you, uh, are you a psychologist then first and foremost? Are you a sort of a cognitive neuroscientist? I think cognitive neuroscientist would be the closest description. And what would be the difference? Enlighten us, the poor, ignorant souls. Well, a cognitive neuroscientist like, likes to look at the both sides, at the psychologist side, but also at the neuroscience side. Whereas a psychologist would typically just look at the, the, the psychological part, the mind. Well, the cognitive neuroscientist is trying to make a connection between the mind and the brain. Mm -hmm. So now, making that connection between the mind and the brain, you know, I have interviewed a few neuroscientists who have said that the mind is the brain, that there is no necessarily that kind of dualism or that kind of mind-brain gap is kind of an artificially created one. It, it's not the real one, that the mind is the brain. Well, that is certainly, in a way, truth. I, nobody believes today, or almost nobody believes today, that there is a special spirit added to the material part of the brain. However, we still use this difference, and it's very useful distinction between these two terms, because in one term, the brain term, you refer to the physiological mechanisms. And then when we use the mind, we refer basically to what this whole system does together in action when it's put together, when it's fully functioning and doing its own thinking things and, and experiencing things. Mm -hmm. and, and how did you get interested in uh, first psychology and then uh, cognitive neuroscience? And why do you think that's important? Tell us about your journey of getting there, personally speaking. Well, my personal journey is, I think, very interesting one. I was somewhere in my early 20s when I had no intention to be a brain scientist, research scientist, but I had wide interests and wanted to read all kinds of different books about different things in the world. And one day I decided to go in the library and get a book on how the brain works. I just thought, you know, it would be a good thing to read that book and know a little bit more about it. So I went to the library, couldn't find the book. Then I went to the other library, couldn't find the book again took some research to realize that this book was never written because no one knew how the brain works. <laughs> this was a surprise for me at that, at that time. I was maybe 21, 22. And then it really you know, made me curious. Why do they don't know how the brain works? Why is it so difficult? That's something interesting to find out. And I got reading more and more and more and got hooked. And you get hooked on some things that you can't really stop doing them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you decided to perhaps write that book yourself? <laughs> yeah, in a way. I haven't still written it, but 
Um, maybe one day. But you're working on pieces of it, right? You're putting the pieces together. That's right. That's Very interesting. So, so what is the ultimate goal of your work then? The best case, the, the dream scenario is that, let's say after 20 or 30 years, after a career in the field, you have the manual of the brain. Here's how the brain works, manual. Uh, yeah, I'm not imagining it as a manual, some sort of a technical scheme that you get with some, let's say, electronic device where it's, you know, all the pieces are there listed out, specified, and so on. But more something like uh, the, what the, the role that the theory of evolution plays for biology. Compare biology before the theory of evolution and after the theory of evolution. So if we had some theory like this about a brain-mind problem, something that's as powerful as insightful, but of course not doesn't provide the details, just provides the basic, most important rules of how the matter transforms into the mind. I think that would be a really great thing to have. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, uh, the theory of evolution was absolutely seminal and, and sort of groundbreaking, revolutionary, not only for the field of biology, but also for a number of other fields. Uh, but so is your theory of practopoiesis then that theory of evolution? And, and what, what is practopoiesis anyway? Well, practopoiesis is a theory about how adaptive systems organize, how they function. And the biological systems are adaptive systems. Our majority of adaptive systems that we have in our world are biological systems, and there are a few other technological ones, but biology takes, takes a bigger part. And practopoiesis is an attempt to create a theory of how such a system would be organized, such that we could understand its internal functioning even though the system is extremely complex, it contains um, billions of components, but if we have the basic rules by which, by which it is organized, we may understand that. Again, we can make a comparison to the theory of evolution, which is describing a process that's extremely complex. It's like billions of years of process of molecules interacting on the entire planet Earth. It's no way you could make a, ever a computational system or process to describe that. But with a very small number of rules, it's like three rules or something, you can actually describe and understand much of this process, what happened, what has happened. Of course, you cannot predict the details, you cannot explain exactly what happened, but it's extremely helpful. So, practicoiesis is an attempt, a similar attempt, but not to understand how the organisms evolve, but to understand what happens to an organism once it has been bored or conceived, right? how it's organized internally. And it turns out that these two theories are actually uh, quite friendly to each other, quite similar. And in a way, theory of evolution can be understood as a special case of practopoiesis. Very interesting. And what's the actual meaning of the word practopoiesis? It comes from uh, ancient Greek. The word praxis indicates action. And the poesis indicates creation. So it's a theory of creation of actions. So the basic premise is that biological systems have the function that they have because they contain of a large number of small units that are able to act in some adaptive way. They, they have a knowledge on when to do something about the organism and what to do in that time. So this is an action that these units perform. Now, the question is not only which actions these units perform? That's an important question. That's what biologists do all the time, of course, and a neuroscientist looking at a neuron, what to do. But the key question practopoiesis is how did this action come about? Who created this mechanism? Who created this machinery? And it turns out that this is basically other action mechanisms at another level of organization that by its own actions create uh, um, action units at a higher level of organization. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically the question you're trying to address here, the way I understand it is, how do we create or how do we take actions? Is that correct? I would say the question is, which mechanisms have enabled us to be able to perform actions? 
If you have any system that you describe, you may describe a system of how we, how some inputs come into our body and how some outputs come about. And you could describe this system. But there is always a question, who created the system? How was this system put on place exactly such to perform these actions? This is a theory of creating systems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. And so then tell us a little more about the theory. Try to sort of lay out your answer to that question. How do we do that? How do those systems evolve or, or, or come to be? So the basic premise of, of practical basis is that these action units are organized into hierarchy. That for any action unit that has been produced somewhere through biological process, there was some under other action unit lower under hierarchy that acted with its own mechanisms, interacting with the environment, of course, and by doing this process has created the properties of the unit of at a higher level of organization. Now, this unit at a higher level of organization can again interact with the environment and produce a unit even higher at the level of organization. So we have, for example, at the lowest level of organization, we would have evolutionary mechanisms that create the properties the genes have. Now, in an organism, you have expression of the genes and the gene expression mechanism, which is a higher level of organization, which then produces the anatomy of the organism. Let's say this produces the anatomy of a nervous system. Then the anatomy of the nervous system is a, forms a mechanism that interacts with the environment and produces our behavior. So we have here a clear hierarchy, which is a poetic hierarchy. One mechanism creates the other mechanism, which creates the other mechanism. And the theory formalizes this process in a, in a number of steps and makes it understandable how things interact, what are the requirements, and puts everything in the framework of so-called cybernetic theory, which is which is very useful. Mm -hmm. So so give us a couple of um, sort of observable cases or examples uh, of where uh, sort of we can fit uh, examples, be it from the animal world, from the machine world, or from us, and how do we fit within that kind of a hierarchic sort of model? Okay, it's a, um, so we already I already mentioned the example with genes making yes uh, the structure. But in general, in neuroscience, what we have realized so far that is that the the neural network requires so-called plasticity mechanisms, and plasticity mechanisms are separated units, separated two separated molecules, separated equations in any model that operate on their own and by doing so change the properties of the network. That would be a biological example that is very well studied and quite well understood. right? But also in technology we have a similar example. For example, in a classical neural network, you would have a level of network of neurons which receive certain activation, have synaptic waves, they interact, send information to each other, and at the end they produce alpha. That's the higher level. But the architecture of that network matters very much because depending on the architecture is defined the function of this network. Who creates the architecture of the network? Is it the learning mechanism? So machine learning theories are basically about these two levels, are uh, require you to develop some sort of a system that will interact with your data and some sort of system that will learn how to interact with a particular data set. So you have two levels of organization. Now, uh, by developing practical theory, we can ask very interesting questions. Like, what happens if we don't have just two levels? But what happens if we have three levels or more levels? Can we make an even more adaptive system? And also a very interesting question, is it possible that our nervous system, that our mind, our brain are organized with more than two levels? So far, all the theories that I know of are thinking about the brain as having these two organizational levels. But using practical theory, we can think through what happens with three organizational levels and ask the question, is that maybe how the brain works? And it turns out my proposal is that, yes, it is. We need three levels. Mm -hmm. 
So, so tell us a little bit about the sort of the interaction of the levels and the uh, the benefit and the costs of having three levels uh, hierarchical organization rather than let's say two or a single level but which is very sort of broad sideways rather than hierarchical and how is that going to change on the sort of dynamics of the system? Okay, that's that's a very good question. If you have just one level, let's consider just one level. You have a system that can has all the knowledge on what to do already prepared in it and just respond to it. This system is going to be very fast. It doesn't have any time to learn. It just knows immediately everything. So the great advantage of having few levels is speed. The great disadvantage of having a small number of levels is the requirement of the memory or the capacity system that you need. You have to have pre-stored all the possibilities already in the system. So if you don't have all the possibilities in the system, then if you cannot fit them all in the system, then you have to miss out on something. Now, if you have multiple levels, then with an additional lower level can be, you can adjust the upper one. So the upper one can be prepared for a given situation, for a given world. Uh, that's what we do, for example, in machine learning algorithms. You don't make a computer program that will act, that will recognize all possible images, all possible obje objects, and do all possible actions. You actually train it for a certain particular data set. This reduces your, your, uh, uh, your requirement on the resources. Now imagine you had a third level that, where you don't even have to uh, learn you don't even have to, uh, uh, how would you say it? You don't have to program your learning mechanisms for the, for the upper level, but also your system can learn this learning mechanism. So all your program is like two levels below, and then the system learns how to learn, basically. And uh, what you get with this, as a, as a, let's say, disadvantage first, the system becomes even slower. But as an advantage, what you get is the system gets even more adaptive. It can adapt its learning. It can learn how to learn. And, and the key idea is that our cognition, our cognitive process, is basically application of this system, of this learned learning role. Let me think about something, when we solve a problem, when you recognize something, any operation, any cognitive operation, it's not just information processing at the top level. In addition, it's a process of reorganizing the system, reorganizing the network through the rules of you have learned how to learn. Mm -hmm. so, so let me ask you a couple of questions here then. So first of all, it seems to me that then another disadvantage of the multi layer or multi-hierarchical system would be the requirement, not, not only that it has a slower speed of response, but also perhaps higher requirement of resources. Is that the case? Actually not. It has lower requirement on resources. It Why is that? Because you have, uh, you, you solve the combinatorial pro explosion problem. Right? Imagine you have you have, uh, uh, you have to produce a, an artificial intelligence system that has just one level. Then, in that case, you would have to program in this system all possible cases, problems, questions that this system will ever be asked. Mm -hmm. That's not possible. You may, require, you may need to require you know, a computer of the size of the universe for that, right? Yes, so, so by going multi-level, you actually improve the level of efficiency because of the combinatorial possibilities of the multi-level. Uh... And these combinatorial uh, possibilities are always used and a new combinatorics is produced through interaction with the environment, through interaction with the current situation in which the system is, is interacting with. Right? So uh, uh, you don't have to be prepared for everything, you're just prepared, you have your general rules and use these general rules to change your system according to the situation in which you are finding yourself right now. And now you say that uh, perhaps uh, human, the human mind is, is a three-level sort of uh, model. Yes. Now, 
what is there a way to test this? I mean, I'm just trying to see that how do we falsify your hypothesis? Is there a way to? I think so, yeah, there is a way to falsify this hypothesis. Uh, we can make predictions about how a three-level system should behave. We can make a direct, uh, direct comparison between how in a certain situation a three-level system should behave and how in a two-level system should behave. And uh, uh, for example, three-level system should, in a novel situation, should take time to, to readjust. The more novel the system, the more time it should take before it starts doing something, acting something. While a, while a two-level system would not take time because it wouldn't even have a level that would say, hey, slow down, I don't get this, we don't know how to do this. Now, what, what two-level system would do, it would start making instead mistakes, errors. It, when something new happens, when some new situation occurs that it didn't experience before, it will either it will make errors, it may adapt to it slowly, but it will first make errors and then adapt. Well, a three-level system may actually not do anything for a while or just play a little bit with the situation, think it through, and then start producing actually correct correct behavior. So T3 system would behave, uh, uh, actually would produce uh, correct behavior quicker, although the first, the first behavioral acts would take longer. Uh, whereas uh, a two-level system would quickly respond, but incorrectly, if, if the situation is. And now it turns out that uh, when we look at human behavior, it's exactly what happens. There is, a, in psychology, a well-known phenomenon of a change from automatic to controlled processes, uh, sorry, from control to automatic processes. Uh, and a good example is when you do something complicated, some skill for the first time in your life, it's very slow, it's very difficult. Like playing the piano, for example. Like playing the piano, for example, yes. Uh, and yeah, after a while, you practice, you practice, you become faster and faster. And, and, and uh, Two-level systems don't have this property. They learn equally quickly. Once they learn one thing, like playing a piano well or playing a certain piece well, they do it really well. But what they have a problem then is that if you teach them a new piano piece, they will forget the old piano piece. It's called catastrophic interference problem in, in neural networks. Right? Uh, Three-level systems don't have this problem because they never store, they never memorize exactly how to play a certain piece or how to do something in precise exactly. They store all the knowledge at one level lower, at one level more abstract, and then each time when they have to, when you have to play the piano, you have to basically use this abstract information and reboot it, reorganize it, use this poetic process to reorganize your network in order to prepare yourself. And then it takes time. If you didn't play piano for for a few months, you cannot just jump and play. You have to prepare a little bit, try something, and then you can play. Three-level system does that. A two-level system, no, it goes straight for it, makes no errors, or it makes irreparable errors. Okay, so so that's a necessary uh, evidence to support your claim. Is it sufficient, though? Because here's the the next question that I have. So obviously, a two-level system would be faster, but would be more error-prone than a three-level system. But does it mean that three-level system would do no errors? I mean, no. I just imagined it would be less prone to doing errors and it would take slower time, longer time to react. But st still, there will be errors made and, oh, yeah. and, and there will be time. So, so, so the devil is really in the detail. So we, how do we know how many errors uh, percentage-wise take us from level two to level three and the speed uh, sort of uh, diminishing uh, take us again from level two to level three. Yeah. So you got me along on the on the necessary. Now now take me along the sufficient path. Uh, I would think I, I think that it's not 
It's a type of error you make. So each system would make a different type of errors. Uh, let, let us just remember that it's human to make errors. And so if, if we are at three level systems, well, we do make errors. Now, what type of errors do humans make? And what type of errors do machines make? Compare this to. Uh, humans make errors of, uh, let's say, vigilance problem. They, they are doing good, 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 and then once they mess it up completely. And then they correct, come back, okay, I messed it up. I lost my attention. I don't know what happened. And then you go back and do things well, 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 well. And then again, you mess up. Now, a two level, our machines, which are up to two level, don't make this kind of error. What they do, what they are programmed for and what they are you know, designed for, they do really well, better than humans. They don't make these mistakes that humans make. But their type of error is that they cannot adjust anymore. They cannot adapt. They cannot come up with a better way to do it. They cannot come up with a better idea on how to do things. Now, there is this mechanism in, in us humans behind its work. Well, I'm, I'm quite good in playing my piano sonata right now this way, but then there's this mechanism behind thinking of better ways to do it, novel ways to do it. And this same mechanism that, that is, you know, eventually produces creativity and so on and make, can make you compose a new piece, it's the same mechanism that makes you sometimes make your and you miss a note or, or, or something by playing your well-trained sonata. Anyway. And that's the, these, these comparisons, I think, are crucial to understand the difference between, between two-level and three-level systems. Mm -hmm. Is there four-level systems? Yes. You take, uh, 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 if a human or any animal is a three-level system, it's an individual. A species itself, the entire species is a four-level system because the fourth level, the lowest level of organization is the evolution. And the species has this additional property of evolving. I mean, we humans don't evolve, but the species evolve. This is another adaptive level that an individual doesn't have, but the entire species has this additional adaptive level that it can evolve into some other species. Even. So there are uh, four level systems. So the higher level of sort of uh, poesis is taken from the individual to the collective over long periods of time through the period of evolution. Uh, can you re rephrase that to make sure that... <laughs> yeah, to make sure I, I get it right and I communicate it right. So. The higher level of sort of um, learning, uh, no, I, I'm trying to find the right word here, and I, I that capability. Yeah, me. Yes. Okay. Yes, or flexibility in a way, really, yeah. intellectual flexibility in some way, or, or knowledge even, is taken one level higher, as an abstraction from the individual to the collective level over a long period of time where the learning is kind of encoded via that process of evolution. I think you're, you're I, I would agree with you, but maybe we would need to sit down and rephrase it differently. But yes, what... How would you say it better than me? That species is more adaptive than an individual. It, yes, yes. It contains all the adaptability of individuals, plus has an additional capability that no individual could ever achieve. You just go and die, but your species can go further and become... Yes, yeah, so, so a species over time is more flexible to adaptation than an individual at a single point of time. Now you, yeah, now you got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I took some, some struggle, okay. All right, good, very good. So we're making progress uh, on this end of the microphone too then. Okay, so, uh, and is there then the, the next question is, so if that's the fourth level, is there a fifth level? In theory, one could, one could think of it. I have no, uh, 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 like any insight of understanding how, how five level system would work and what. Cosmologically maybe? Maybe cosmologically, what some people has, have uh, proposed to me is to understand the society. So the other, 
the other uh, uh, end of the dimension, right? So individuals combine and interact into society, right? And uh, there's a possibility that there is maybe an additional level somehow in the organizations, in the, uh, let's say, in the companies and organization, a group of people is an organization. But I just did not spend enough time to understand this properly. So I cannot really, I don't know right now whether this is really new poetic level of organization or not. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I can see so, how some people would say that, let's say, a bureaucratic organization such as a government or a corporation would kind of encode that level, that knowledge at another level of abstraction. Yet I, I'm not quite sure if it really fits. I, I would need a little more convic convincing and or figuring out how exactly it plugs in there. Uh, but you know what, this kind of reminds me a little bit to the Markov models that Ray Kurzweil talks a lot about in his book. So is that similar or different? Uh, would you help us make a distinction? I think it's very different. Uh, um, Markov model itself is a one-level system. It's a, it's a mathematical system that has equations, that is, let's say, a lower level of organization. And then you have, uh, you apply these equations, they calculate something at the end, you have some numbers coming out of it. That's the operation of, at the higher level. So you have this operation produced from low level to the higher level. You may have some other mechanism that gives parameters to the Markov model. This could be a learning mechanism. So we would have one level Markov model, the other level would be learning mechanism. So, as far as I understand it, it's still a two-level system. And they still have all these limitations of two-level systems. No matter how intelligent and creative you are in coming up with the algorithms, with the equations, with the system for learning, if you are at a, at a two-level, then you will be limited. You will stay at these limitations. Mm -hmm. So... I'll come back to that in a second, but before that, let me ask you this. So how is practiopoiesis going to help us, for example, in the creation of artificial intelligence, or will it? I think it certainly will, because it's basically telling us that uh, what we do right now with machine learning algorithms, with neural network algorithms, is not going to be enough. We can... Uh, produce more of those algorithms. We can big, build bigger machines, but they will grow only, as you point uh, said, sideways. Sideways. They yes. will be. They will contain more and more knowledge. They will be. Uh, they will be better than humans in this knowledge that they have. They, like Watson uh, uh, computer. They will have a huge amounts of really fast access to information, but they will never have this third component of adjusting, of coming up with new ideas, of being creatively uh, thinking about, okay, but I could now improve and come up with something even new. Now, uh, this is not a critique, like, you know, you are never going to do it. Actually, practopoiesis is telling us, telling us what we need to do, what we need to think about, in which direction we need to go to make it a uh, human-like type of adaptive intelligence. We need to have three-level systems, and which, by the way, in, in the theory, I call it T3 system. Uh, and that's where our engineering efforts have to go. We have, to, so we should not think of learning mechanisms for these algorithms, for these machines. What we should be thinking of is the mechanisms for learning how to learn. So go one level below and come up with mechanisms for learning how to learn. And then let the system learn its own learning. So it learn its own learning rules. At the end, what, what turns out is that all our knowledge is then becomes stored in these learning rules. Now, that's very different than what, than what we have now, what we have traditionally. Now we, we consider, for example, in the, in the brain or in artificial neural networks, we think that knowledge is stored, stored actually in the anatomy of the network, in the synaptic connections, right? In other machine algorithms, you have a parallel to some other matrices, 
where information is stored. And then you have interaction of some systems, some equations that deal with, this, with these, with these numbers stored in, the, in these matrices. However, what Rastopoiesis tells us, no, this doesn't matter. You need all this system. Of course, it's necessary, but that's not really where, where the, the key is. The key is one level below. And our actually human knowledge is stored in the rules on how to learn. And these rules are applied quickly within let's say half a second, one second, couple of seconds, when you receive something, you reorganize your network through these learning rules. So we have a, over life, we learn, acquire, you know, huge amount of learning rules. And to acquire them, we have a small amount of, of rules, even below them, of learning how to learn. That's the way how we have to, how we have to engineer and how we have to think. So big data is just not enough. Big data is not enough. No, not at all. Because some people think it's a matter of number crunching. Like once you get to a certain level of data, then you 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 get qualitative transformation simply due to the vastness of that data. Well, this this is in principle correct, right? You could have in theory a, a two-level system, a T2 system that has all the necessary knowledge, doesn't have to adapt. It has everything already in the network. It's just when you look at the combinatorics of it, it's just going to explode. You're never going to have a big enough computer to store all possible situations in which a human could encounter. Right? This would mean you know, all possible lives, all possible worlds, all possible languages, all possible everything. It's never going to be enough memory for that. You have to go one level more abstract and have some generalities and then from situation to situation from moment to moment adjust it very quickly this could take you know half a second for for us a couple of hundred of milliseconds when things is more complicated maybe a little longer when something is really surprising takes a little longer and uh, uh but that's how we how we do it Basically, our consciousness is the process of this restructuring, reorgan, continuous reorganization of the system. Mm -hmm. Now, you you mentioned one word there that I want to grab, but before that, um, I want to. Uh, it it occurs to me that maybe actually a useful way to differentiate between narrow AI and uh, general AI. Yeah, like narrow yeah. AI would basically be restricted to two levels maximum, whereas yeah. anything above that would be general AI. Yes, that's true. Actually, if you look, the history of AI, I think a very brief history would be like this. The first attempts, like from Alan Turing and, and later, were uh, one level. People thought, oh, we could just program everything in a computer. We'll just put if-then rules, and the programmer will do the, the type it in, yeah, yeah. and then the computers will do it. Soon enough, we came clear, well, it's not going to work. The, the combinatorics is too bad. So the second you know, improvement was, okay, let's go one level below, and we don't program everything into computer, we actually program a few learning rules, and then give big data to the computer, and then the computer will learn from the data. That's much better, much more adaptive. But what Practopoiesis tells us, the theory, and then application of the theory to what we know about the human mind, is that we have to go one step more down. We have to make one more big step toward down, and then we'll be, then we can get to that level. So we have to teach the machine how to learn, how to learn, so right. so that so that it can learn to learn on its own and then go and learn. <laughs> Something like this, yeah. It, it's a it's a it's a bit confusing when you to using this terminology. That's why I I introduce some other words like for this process. I, I, I... okay. So create rules of learning on how to learn and then go and learn yeah that's, <laughs> that's pretty... all right all right very good so now you mentioned one word there that i want to grab and that's the word consciousness where does consciousness fit within your model or does it it fits very nicely in your model right? uh there is this Big problem with consciousness, big discussion with consciousness, lots of different views. And if you look uh, from the perspective of cognitive scientists and some of the philosophers, not everyone, 
they would say, well, you neuroscientists still did not explain consciousness. You didn't do good job at all. And there's a lot of life to figure out. Then you have perspective of neuroscientists who would say, no, 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 no. We have figured it out. We, everything works. And the consciousness actually doesn't matter because the system exactly. works. Yeah. Peter Voss, who is, uh, one of the who is actually one of the people, the two people together, I think, with Ben Gertil, they coined the terms narrow and general AI and who works in the field, he, he said, he, he shocked me during my conversation with him, he said consciousness is a solved problem. Yeah, that, that, he's not alone. There are many people, <laughs> it, also in neuroscience, there are many people uh, who, who think this way. And right? uh, now, when you look at T3 systems, systems with three levels, then uh, this confusion becomes somehow cleared up. And what it turns out is that people who were uh, uh, saying, well, you, have, you need consciousness have been right, but also people who said, well, we don't need it have been right. But they were talking about two different systems. In a T2 system with two levels, everything works fine, you don't need a consciousness. But this system cannot do the adaptive kind of things that humans do and animals do. Uh, the people who are saying, well, you didn't get a consciousness, they were looking at the behavior of what's happening in T3 systems, the systems with three levels. And it was just not clear what was, what was missing there. And now uh, practical theory actually suggests what was missing. And, uh, and then consciousness can be, I wouldn't say explained very quickly and easily, but we can start, we, we have a very clear point where to start. Where, where it fits. At, where it fits. It fits actually in the middle, in the middle of these three levels. So you have a low level, learning how to learn, the very general learning rules. Then you have your learning rules up that you learned over life, many, many learning rules, your knowledge in this learning, and then you have the new network activity. So the consciousness will be here in the middle. This, this new process that neuroscience did not consider so far. This process of restructuring your network quickly within half a second or a couple of hundred of milliseconds. This process that didn't really, hasn't been really recognized as important is actually the one where we have to understand better, study it empirically, theoretically, and that's how we are going to make progress in understanding consciousness. Another word that you said here that I want to grab is empirically. So let me, let me ask you this. Can we test and or allocate those layers in different parts of the brain by an empirical observation or test? Or in other words, can we associate those different levels with different brain tissues and or areas? Uh, yes, absolutely, definitely. Uh, of course, uh, two out of three are already have been studied quite a bit, and we know quite, we have a very extensive knowledge of that. And, uh, the question is, of course, with the third one. Where, where is the third one? And the, since it's a poetic theory, predicts that it must be actual mechanism. It must be actual separate physical, physiological machinery that does it. Because it has to be able to poetically create some other machinery, and it has to be created by, by this, some other third machinery. Uh, where it is located right now, I don't know. We don't know because we have to start doing experiments. However, it's important to realize that there is a lot of mechanisms, lots of physiological uh, uh, phenomena and mechanisms and, and machinery in the brain that we have seen already in experiments and that we have for all these years ignored, uh, give, gave them minor functions or did not put them in the major theories of how the brain works exactly for the reason we didn't have a place for that we didn't know what to do with them they were there they were under the microscope they were there when we recorded the activity of the brain they were all the way there they were actually all the time yelling to us hello i'm here come on and then what we did with them we didn't have the right theory so we did then oh again this problem oh again this noise Let's average it out. Let's come up with an experimental design to get rid of these things because 
they make no sense to us. So we were actually uh, kind of putting under the carpet data that were telling us, look, here we are. This is what's happening in the brain. And uh, uh, now we have to basically look, open it, look at it, study it, probe it like we do empirically, and we will learn more about them. And we'll probably soon locate these mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Do you think we will be able to locate consciousness? In a way, yes. I mean, all these mechanisms, you can at the end find the physiological processes. And then uh, once we agree on a definition where we put the border, what is conscious, what is not, then we can say, okay, this and this and this mechanism is responsible for that. This other is not, but it's supporting it that way. So we will be able, and the, the confusion, the mystery, I think, will, will, will um, kind of go away. I think, I think of it as a you know, magic trick, when you see some amazing magic trick, and you don't know how it works. Ah, it's perplexing. Yeah, I, it drives me crazy. You think, oh man, you think of all kinds of crazy things, but what happens when you find out how it works? It becomes trivial. It becomes uninteresting in a way. It, it loses this glare of, of mystery. It loses this glare of, of something being fantastic. And that's why, why magicians don't want to give away tricks because people are not interested anymore about tricks that they know answers to, so they wouldn't make any money. <laughs> I think something similar will happen with the, with the problem of, of consciousness, that we will understand these mechanisms and the, the concept, the word consciousness, will lose quite a bit of scientific meaning. Uh, it will still stay in popular language. Worse. But scientifically, it will lose meaning and because we will differentiate in many different additional mechanisms and, and so on. So I think we will solve that problem. So speaking of sort of popular consciousness or the public perception, let me, let me give you a quote from David Brooks from the New York Times and, and ask you to comment on it. So he says, the brain is not the mind. It is probably impossible to look at a map of brain activity and predict or even understand the emotions, reactions, hopes and desires of the mind. So the next time somebody tells you what the brain scan says, be a little skeptical. The brain is not the mind. All right. Uh, if he puts it that way, so he says brain is not the mind and then defines how it is, I think it's correct. I think it is correct. Uh, it's just... You know, if you would have, you know, somehow completely 100% accurate scan of the brain and and uh, know every molecule where it is, you couldn't tell anything about the emotions and the, what this person is thinking and so on. So this is correct. The mind is built on these physiological mechanisms, but there is a huge complexity gap that you cannot cannot go from these molecules to to the mind uh, and directly understand it. So this is like, let's see, in the case of theory of evolution, if you look uh, just uh, all the molecules in a certain, uh, um, let's say, bacteria, I guess you couldn't be able to tell many things about how this bacteria lives its life, what does it eat, how it survives, what kind of, I don't know, dynamics, physiology it has. It's, it's also complex. Maybe it's not as complex, but it's still a, comp a complex problem. So it would be saying, okay, uh, molecules are not life. That's true. Molecules are not life. And yet, life is based on molecules. Same thing here. A brain is not mind, but yet mind is based on this brain. And there is this complexity problem that we have to solve. And we solve it by various scientific theoretical tricks, like theory of evolution, like theories of metabolism, and I think practopoiesis will be one useful way of, of solving this complexity problem. Another way of solving, or not solving, but sort of proposing a theory of consciousness um, has been pushed forward uh, by Dr. Stuart Hameroff and by Roger Penrose. 
the so-called or or quantum theory of consciousness. What's your take on that? I'm not really buying it. <laughs> Why not? I have read about it since a long time ago. It, uh, uh, it, uh, it's been around quite a bit. My opinion on this one is that uh, it's not explaining anything. It's like you have two mysteries. One mystery is consciousness, complicated to understand, difficult, uh, difficult to grasp. And the other mystery is quantum mechanics, complicated to understand, difficult to grasp. Don't know what's happening, which interpretation of quantum mechanics we should take. So they say, okay, let's simplify and make these two mysteries one mystery, and this mystery and this mystery are the are one mystery. Doesn't explain anything. Even if it was, let's say, if it was correct and if it was true, I would be very disappointed because it wouldn't explain anything. I wouldn't know anything more about the brain before and after this theory. Just saying, like, it, it's just complicated. It was complicated, remains to be complicated, remains to be incomprehensible. So it's very, um, doesn't, doesn't produce epistemological satisfaction. <laughs> but does that mean it's not true? And, and also, I mean, I, I, it's been probably a well over a year since I interviewed uh, Dr. Hamroff, but I think just one of the probably not so excellent examples uh, was that uh, their theory, for example, can take into uh, or can can pro can propose a way of explaining extra body experience of, of people who are unconscious, for example, and who describe the room that they've been in or something like that. Um, yeah, I could imagine how this theory could explain something like that, but. A theory has a theory like this should explain many many more things let me give you a better example I think now it's coming back to my mind so for example um, when people take a certain kind of uh, was it the DMT the the molecule that you find in ayahuasca and and all other hallucinogenic uh, substances right and the the, the classic model of the brain would suggest that if you're having those experiences and people are reporting them all kinds of visions colors etc the brain has to be all lit up and active and yet what we observe is quite the opposite quite the contrary it looks like there's when you look at it from an fMRI point of view and so on it looks like there's not much going on happening there and yet people are having all those very vivid very powerful experiences which do not seem to be registered by the brain so therefore the argument goes they must be happening at some other level like the quantum level at which we cannot detect them or we're kind of they're kind of plugging in into that quantum level I mean this is this argument is logically consistent but it's, it remains to be a very weak argument because See, any theory in neuroscience has to not only explain this one thing that you're not explaining, but it has to be consistent with the vast knowledge in neuroscience that we have collected over, over many years. And you can have, you know, that thick books. And then another thick book on the behavior and psychology. It has to be all generally consistent. And that's where such theories fail. They explain one phenomenon and are largely inconsistent or at least ignorant of many other facts. You wouldn't know how to put anything from this, from a textbook into this theory. And uh, uh, you explain one thing, you unexplain or kind of make a problem, a conceptual problem for hundreds of other, and hundreds of other places. Mm -hmm. so, and that's not really you know, good. <laughs> that's really attractive. As a theory. Well, it, it may show us that we don't know as much as we think we know and that we may have to reevaluate, and that certainly is uncomfortable, but in some cases, just like Einstein did, for example, like we had to reevaluate everything after him. Uh, but let me move on to the other uh, sort of a big problem here. One is consciousness, the other is free will. So, 
Okay. You're laughing. Are, are you? Do, do you not agree that that's another? Sort no, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's it's. I'm I'm uh, kind of glad that you asked this question. They're very popular, interesting questions. Yeah, it's it's. Uh... So where where does free will fit within your? I mean, they're popular, especially and important for me because, uh, you know, I, from an ethical point of view, I would like to believe that we are free agents uh, and we possess the power of free will. Uh, so let me ask you, where do you stand on that continuum? Because, you know, an awful large number of scientists that I interview on my show have been determinists to one degree or another. Uh, and also, once you tell us where you are, then perhaps whether and how free will fits within your practopoiesis uh, theory or does it at all? Uh, I'm a determinist as well. So uh, free will, the experience of free will, the, the, the illusion of free will is something that comes out of deterministic physical processes. Nevertheless, I think we should feel like we have a free will. We should enjoy this feeling and we should treat it as if we have a free will. And I think the reason for that is that practopoiesis uh, gives us so much flexibility, this T3 system, and so much capability of adaptive behavior. And, and it gives us the, the, gives the system the ability to adjust and learn how to adjust more and more that, that if we, you know, treat ourselves as having a free will, we will actually progress more and become better and better and more and more successful. So I don't think it's a problem that we, that we are determinist. And now, where does it fit in the, in the practical theory? Uh, as we discussed a couple of minutes ago, there is this uh, practopathic theory of T3 systems, or three-level systems, presumes that all our knowledge is stored one level below, in very general rules on how to interact with the world, instead of having exact rules on how to interact in different situations. These general rules uh, come up in our, in our mind as something that we call concepts and conceptual understanding of the world, all kinds of concepts. As we develop, as we learn the world, we learn concepts. Now, to understand the free will, we have to understand the type of concept that normally a human develops. And there are some very important concepts for us, and one of these concepts is, uh, concepts is the concept of self. Me, I, is a concept. And then there is a concept in the contrary, the rest of the world. Now, as we develop through, as a children, as a child throughout the life, we sharpen this distinction. What is me? What is the rest of the world? And as we go, we learn more and more the my part, the world part, the relationship between me and the world. And by developing this rich structure of conceptual understanding of the world, that's where we start understanding, uh, dissociating uh, ourselves from the world. And that's where we get start getting the feeling the experience, and also practically it works that way, that we have quite a bit of a free will of decision how to interact with the world. Right? And uh, so it's the actual, the, the richness of the conceptual structure that we develop at this low level of organization. This what you're saying would, in a funny way, kind of support the Zen Buddhist idea that that distinction between us and the environment is an artificially created one. It's not a real one. Absolutely. Absolutely. The concepts are something that's practical, that's useful. It's not absolute truth. It's something that's, and it's really practical to think of myself as an myself individual, because whenever I move and go somewhere, everything else goes with me, right? If I, if I go there, uh, and into another room, also my hair will go with me, and also my knowledge, my skills, my everything will go with me. So it's practical to think of me as one, one entity. If you could possibly try and think different way, and you'll probably end up confused and making errors and mistakes and not be so adaptive in, in your behavior. It's just a practical thing. It's not an absolute truth. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. That's that's absolutely fascinating to me, um, Danko. So, 
let me let me give you another couple of examples here. Uh, we've already discussed about uh, the orch or theory, but what about the human brain project? How do you think and where do you think that fits in our ability to garner new knowledge or, or the or the connectome? Uh, the human connectome project. I think that's the the parallel in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. So, what what do you think of the of those projects? Well, both of these projects are based on the on the two level presumption. Yes. And if that were the case, if T two systems is exactly how the brain works, then yes, we have a, some conceptual problem because we have this theory and we don't get it really how the how the whole thing comes about from these pieces. And in this case, it would be reasonable to make either of these steps or both of these steps uh, as in another attempt to figure out what's going on because we cannot do it analytically. We've tried for so many years. So let's just try put everything simulate in a computer one way or the other, two different approaches. But massive amounts of data. Massive amounts of data, put it in a computer, press the on button, see what happens. And then maybe we'll learn something more. It has been shown in the history of mathematics that this has helped. You know, if you put some, uh, you take some differential equations, some chaotic systems, you simulate them, you learn something more about the system that you couldn't do analytically. So it would be kind of reasonable if it was a T2 system. But uh, as my opinion is that the system is a three-level system, I think they're completely missing out. They are going to simulate all these parts that are incomplete at the end, and they will look at the at complexity of some computer simulated machinery that is uh, very complicated and yet incomplete, like seriously incomplete about the about the uh, uh, what the brain really does because it's missing one very important component. Mm -hmm. You know that's very interesting because. Uh... That's kind of very much what Professor Marvin Minsky said uh, during my interview with him. Uh, he, he thought it's, a, it's an enormous waste of resources because precisely because of the fact that they did not start or have an overarching theory of, of how the whole thing would work together. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a, it, maybe it's an overstatement, but it kind of looks like a desperate move. Like... Oh, we don't get it, we don't get it, let's just try something crazy. Let's just put everything in a computer, maybe the computer will get it for us. Uh, and uh, I had this morning a discussion with some friends uh, here at the Institute, and uh, one, one pointed out, came up with it, with explanation, that it's a, la a lack of patience, maybe. Instead of going theoretically, patiently through some steps analytically, uh, maybe, and you know, I just put it in the computer and then the computer will do the work for us. Um, so I think it's, th these projects are certainly going to be helpful in some way. They, there will be something will come out, out of it. It's not, uh, like a complete mistake. Uh, something will come out of it. We will know after something more than we knew before, but I think they're not going Straightly for the for the reward. They're not going straightly to to the to the point. There there is a quicker way, I think. So so let me ask you this then. So if they're missing kind of a major element here of of of, of, of the whole sort of hierarchical structure of the brain model, then what does that say about the potential for mind uploading? Because those two projects can be qualified as, in a way, whole brain simulations or attempts at whole brain simulations. And you're saying they're not going to work very well precisely because from the get-go, by design, they're missing a major component. Yeah. Then also we have attempts by people such as uh, Randall Kuna to create whole brain emulation. So what's, what does practopoiesis tell us about the possibility or the potential to create mind uploads? It's going to be very hard. Harder than we think. Harder than we think. It's going to be uh, uh, this amount of knowledge that you have to have at this level. This is so many details and they all depend on each other. Uh, uh, that's, it's really, really hard. It's like you know, 
scanning uh, a book, but you don't want to scan the letters. You want to scan all the little pixels, everything correct. And if you get a few wrong, it's not anymore your mind. It's some other mind. <laughs> and it could mess up things in, in some way. So it's going to be, I think, really, really hard. I mean, you would have to have some very precise machine that can get, you know, every molecule down uh, uh, to the precision that, you know, doesn't really matter, the error doesn't really matter. And then once you've done it, once you scan all this, you have to simulate it and run it. And then you have to have this supercomputer. And then, you know, if you may be able to do it from one mind, what's the point? You How you going to do it for multiple minds? How are you going to make it commercial that anyone can buy it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, accessible, uh, yeah. Accessible. Uh, I don't know, maybe, but it's really somewhere far, far, far in the future. We'll, some, we'll, have, we'll need some several major technological advancements. But in principle, you know, it's doable as, as so right now as a science fiction technology. Danko, I have to say I've been enjoying immensely our conversation here, but unfortunately time is advancing and we've been chatting away for over an hour now. So let me ask you the second last question that I usually ask, and that is very simply, where can people go and find more about you and your work? What's the best place? Well, it's, it's very easy to find uh, um, my website. Just Google my name. The first link will be my website. Google the word Cactopoiesis. You will you will find all the information. Then everything's linked, and it's it's very easy to find. It. Mm -hmm. Very good, excellent. And of course, I would link uh, from our interview page. And now we're coming to perhaps the most important part, uh, and that's the final message. That after speaking about a variety of sort of topics uh, for 60 minutes, what do you think is the most important message that you want to send out for our viewers and listeners today? Well, what I would like to say is the following. We normally think, you know, neuroscientists, computer scientists, engineers, that we have to understand the brain, the intelligence from the point of view of information processing. We have this one level system that contains information and it jiggles this information somehow and the result comes out, like our computer. This is the paradigm to understand the intelligence. And what Practopoiesis says, no, it's not the paradigm to understand the intelligence. It is required, it's, a, it's a, the necessary component. But where the intelligence and the mind really comes about is about the mechanisms that in real time, real fast, reorganize this system that contains information, that actually build the properties, that create the properties of the system. And the creation of the system is what we have to look after, not the information. Information is the easy part, and creation is the, the hard part that we overlooked so far. That's absolutely fascinating. Dan Kunikolic, I'd like to thank you for being with us today. And thank you very much for that too.